Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to another edition of Politics Done Right on KPFT. Today we have a great show for you. Uh, you know what special happened t- this week? Interior Secretary Deb Haaland, the first, first Native American to serve on a presidential cabinet. Uh, Biden, President Biden chose her as his Interior Secretary. I interviewed her at Netroots 2019. So what I'm going to do is play that interview for you as well because what you're going to see is we, progressives, have a friend we know for sure in the cabinet. Uh, Secondly, we're going to have Professor David Dozer who's going to discuss how fake news has become an effective weapon on today's uh, political climate as well as the failing, uh, falling trust in the mainstream media journalists. And lastly, we have somebody that I really enjoy talking to. That is activist Sofia Sepulveda. She is not going to disappoint. She is an activist of substance that is doing the work to make a difference throughout the country. So folks... Get ready. You have a hell of a show that we're going to get busy with. But look, even though Fun Drive is over, I want to ask you guys so that we don't have to have it quickly again. Please remember, when you get a chance, click, go to kpft.org, kpft.org, and give some support to KPFT at uh, in, in, the, in the name of Politics Done Right. So go ahead and go to kpft.org, click that donate button, and in the name of uh, Politics Done Right, please provide us that necessary support to keep this 100,000-watt transmitter that permeates the entire Southeast Texas. We get to put our message out there. Let's not lose this. Keep us there. Anyhow, let's get busy with the program and let's go ahead and have a talk with uh, former uh, Congresswoman Deb Haaland and now Interior Secretary of the United States. Uh, I'm here with Congresswoman Deb Haaland of New Mexico One. Welcome aboard Politics Done Right. It is my pleasure, Politics Done Right, it's my pleasure to have you here this morning. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Congresswoman, please, uh, first of all, 
You know the first question that I'm going to ask you because it is, it's been our passion for a long time. What is your position on Medicare for All? I am, well, maybe this will answer your question. My, I'm in the Medicare for All caucus, so. Uh, okay, it's, in, it's not enough that you're in the Medicare for All caucus because a, a lot of Congress people, what they would say is, yes, I'm in a, con in, in a caucus and I've signed this. I want to know, are you a real supporter of Medicare for All? Absolutely, because everybody deserves to have health care in this country. Right. Everyone deserves to have health care. And so uh, anywhere that that is the model for Medicare for All uh, has taken place in other countries, uh, the health care costs have been less and more people have been able to be covered. So, um, so yes, I, I am. I am for. I am for it. I will actively work toward it. I. I want to make sure that every single person in this country has health care. When you are covered, uh, and your kids are covered, your life becomes better, because you don't have to worry about uh, people turning you away when you need to go see a doctor. So uh, I. I just feel that's the way to go. It'll save us money, and and we need to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's for, for a long while I just could not understand why this was so complicated. I mean, I followed uh, I followed this throughout Canada, the UK, uh, uh, France, and all these other places, and they're all healthier than we are. Exactly. So you know, I did my year abroad in Swansea, Wales, right. when I was a junior in college, and I. If, even if you're not a citizen of that country, if you're sick, you just go to the doctor. Right. They don't ask you for a passport or where are you from and we're not going to serve you because you're, you know, you, you're not as... They will see anybody. You just go in there and they, the doctor sees you. Now, the 2020 election is upon us. And one of the things that many people have been saying, including myself, is I don't think we as a party, Democrats as a party, are necessarily fighting hard enough for a lot of progressive, uh, progressive policies. I noticed that uh, we, it seems like in the group of candidates that we have, mm -hmm. we probably have two factions, a faction of five that are going real progressives, progressive and some that are saying, well, we need to tack to the center. Do you think uh, there, first of all, do you think there's really some center or do you think it's likely a mythical thing? It's, well, first of all, I think it's time to be bold right. in our country because look what's happening with, look what's happening with the president we have. Right. I wasn't going to talk about the president. No, but it's, 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 we have to be bold. We right. have to counteract everything that he's been doing since he's been in office. Um, I think that, I, I'm just going to tell you one thing real quick. When I ran for office, right. I was I was rated the most progressive candidate in my in the field in of your primary yeah. primary candidates. I had five opponents. When I ran, so I won. When I ran uh, in the general election, I won by 23 points in a plus seven district. Wow! In a, it was only a plus seven Democratic district. Imagine that. So that means that independents and Republicans voted for me. Right on a progressive message, right. on climate change, on renewable energy economy, on health care, on public education, on all of those things. So I believe strongly that a progressive message works for everybody. We, we're not, we don't have to just 
campaign to progressive voters. Our message works across the spectrum. If if people in rural, you know, Louisiana, right. Mississippi feel like their issues are going to be championed by somebody, um, why wouldn't they vote for that person? Congresswoman, you're my hero. I think uh, there, there, there's something that you said that the polls actually corroborate. The mm -hmm. polls say when not given a progressive slant or a right slant, the polls say that 60% plus of people support the progressive policies uh, from schools to uh, health care to all these different policies, 60%. Yes. It concerns me that not only the Republican Party to some extent, but the Democratic Party continuously searches for this mythical center. What we need, in my opinion, are bold, bold candidates. Yes. And you're proven to be one. Bold candidates that are going to go out there and really represent what the people are asking for and not what some in what I call the elite are stressing, simply what I think is corporate-based. Yes, I think bold is the way to go. That's true. Now, let's change the subject a little bit. Let's okay. get a little bit ethnic here. Okay. Okay. You, well, I, 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 I think I can get a little bit ethnic. You can. Right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you are one of the first Native Americans in Congress. Native American women. Women in Congress. Is that correct? Yes. Now, tell me, what does that mean to you? It means that I have a responsibility to make sure that I am giving voice to folks who haven't had a voice in this Congress. Right. And you know, don't you find it ironic that we are at 2019 mm -hmm. and the origin, and, and I excuse the way I'm going to say this, but the originals of this country, representation in Congress is that limited. Yes, it is. It's terrible. That's why I ran. And that's why you won. Yeah, huh? that's why I ran. Well, I won because I feel like I oh, worked no, I'm not extremely hard. I'm not talking one and oh. ethnicity. I'm talking about winning on originality. Well, I'd like to think so, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but co Congresswoman, uh, one, one last thing on, okay. on the Green New Deal. Yes. Your position. I'm a co-sponsor, original co-sponsor. Okay. And we're, uh, we're working on it. You know, it's... And I think it's I think it's kind of funny how a lot of Republicans are you know saying what it is they're saying what they think it is and it's not that we uh, those of us who who accept we don't ex I mean in a way we understand and we believe that uh, climate change is absolutely ruining our planet when. Right. You know, when you when Anchorage, Alaska is 90 degrees. Can you believe that? Yes. That is, uh, that's scary as hell. Pardon my language. That's, that's that's a scary thing. That we have to do something about this. It's an urgent matter. We can't wait. No matter how expensive it is, we need to change our world. We need to change this country. We're the biggest polluters. 25% of carbon. 25% of the carbon that goes into the atmosphere from our country comes from our public lands. Did you know that? No, I did not. That's I knew terrible. I knew we did a lot, but that's, that's terrible. Public that land. means we have that's, control. That yes, we we are we we are giving too many leases to fossil fuel industries and not enough to renewable energy industries. We need to change what's happening in our country, and um, so 
Yes, give, we're working toward that. I love that. Please give a direct message to our audience on voting and a direct message to our audience on progressive values. So look, everybody, we need to be bold this 2020 election, and you have a job that is to make sure that our progressive message goes out to everybody. We don't need just progressives to vote for our progressive candidates. We need everybody. Our messaging works because we care about working families, because we care about children, because we care about our climate, because we care about what is happening to children on our southern border. So let's get with it. Congresswoman Deb Hound, it's a pleasure having you. The pleasure's mine. And you are a progressive hero. <laughs> Thank Have you. A great day. We are honored today to have Dr. David Dozier, who is the author of The California Killing Field. And, and inter he's an internationally recognized expert and speaker on mass communication, public relations, and communication management. Uh, he is also a professor emeritus in the School of Journalism and Media Studies at San Diego State University. Dozier is author or co-author of over 100 books book chapters, articles, scholarly papers, and his works have been cited by other scholars over 4,000 times. Welcome aboard Politics and Right, David Dozer. How are you doing today? Very good. And you, sir? I am doing, I'm doing great. Today, we have an important topic to discuss, and I think it is right up your alley. Specifically, has the growth of fake news infected our political process, to which you say... Yes, it has. Now, is it yet fatal? Is it quasi-fatal? Where are we in the realms of what this kind of fake news can do to a society, to a government, to a system? I think that we're kind of at a crossroads. I think that under the uh, Trump administration, uh, fake news and uh, uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, uh, ran rampant and uh, it was coming right out of the White House. And so it's understandable that many people would feel confused uh, and uh, misinformed. Uh, and I think that when you look at the uh, insurrection at the Capitol building on January 6th and listen to what some of the people said, um, they were in a bubble. Uh, they had beliefs that were, uh, from my point of view, uh, detached from reality. Um, but those views were uh, reinforced by a lot of information that was being fed to them um, uh, by uh, the former president, um, by uh, right-wing media channels. And I think that um, what we need to do as a society is to come to grips with the notion that we may disagree with each other uh, in terms of what the facts mean and how we feel about them. But I think that we have to have some kind of foundation in reality where we all agree, yeah, it's a fact. Uh, Joe Biden did win the presidency, fact. Um, and so those things are uh, some of the challenges that I think we're facing. Now, um, earlier in, in listening to your the initial part of your answer, you said that a lot of the people on January 6th in your opinion, a lot of what they said was, you didn't say silly, but you said, you know, made no sense, was false. Um, isn't it a, a part of the issue as well for us to even give it plausibility that says, in my opinion, what they said was false? 
aren't there certain things that are just black and white? What you're saying is simply wrong. And maybe a lot of folks on the progressive side, on the news side, on the other side need to stop uh, maybe just saying it's simply not so. Well, I think um, that's one of the things I've observed over the course of the uh, Trump administration was a, um, I'll call it a step up to the plate moment for a lot of, uh, a lot of journalists because um, in the past, uh, politicians love the old style journalists and, and, and the derogatory definition of a journalist was a stenographer with amnesia. And so, <laughs> yes, uh, and so, and so uh, if uh, uh, the president of the United States said something that was false, something that we knew was false, and let's face it, it started right after his inauguration when he said it was the largest uh, inauguration crowd ever. Well, you know, these things are factual. Um, and so you can check them out. You can look at aerial photos. You can look at uh, Barack Obama's initial inauguration. You can look at Donald Trump's. Count the pick people in the crowd. And so uh, in the past, what journalists would do is say, well, the president said this. So let's go find a Democrat that would say something different and then let the uh, listener um, or viewer or reader make up their own minds. Uh, I think that's, that's the easy way out. I think the, the harder thing to do is when you know that something is factually incorrect, you need to call people on it and you need to identify that in uh, the uh, news that you provide uh, about that. Now, one of the beauties of uh, reading something online is that you can have a link that says uh, this was false, and then you provide the reader uh, the opportunity to look why you say that. What are the uh, sources that allow you as a journalist to say, no, that's not true? Well, let, let me, let me uh, push you a second here, uh, Dr. Dozier, because as I, you're a journalism professor. Uh, Correct. Now, one of the things that's taught in journalism is exactly that. He said, she said. In other words, don't become a part of the story. And in fact, that is what Rand Paul used against uh, Stephanopoulos just this weekend when uh, Stephanopoulos said simply, you are incorrect. Don, I mean, uh, Joe Biden won the election. Uh, immediately, Rand Paul said, wait a minute, Stephanopoulos, you are making yourself a part of the story. You should, you should simply, in the old days, what journalists did is they did exactly what you said. And I agree with you. That is what I thought. I'm, not, I'm an engineer, not a journalist, uh, journalistic, journalism student. But what I did learn in moving my grade into journalism is that was the way journalism was taught. You didn't become a part of the story. You got all the sides together. And then you, you hoped that the American population or whoever you're feeding the news to would be able to make that decision as to what is true and what's not. What I'm saying here is our population, I think for journalism to work in a population like that, you have to assume a fairly intelligent population. Am I right? Or is that, is that correct or not? Well, I think you're, you're correct. I, I wouldn't use the word intelligent so much as informed. Informed, yes, and, correct. Uh, and and, and what, I would, what I would add to that is that when we look at things like QAnon, for instance, um, uh, and some of the things that um, they claimed, you know, you got this cabal of Democrats that are uh, basically engaged in human trafficking and cannibalism and Satanism. Well, from where I sit, that 
that's like a bad acid trip. I mean, that doesn't have any, <laughs> I'm sorry, it doesn't have any foundation in reality with being inside a bubble, information bubble, where everything those people were hearing was coming from Jim's Jones. And for a lot of people on the right, uh, when Trump would say outrageous things, um, they believed it. And they were getting lots of reinforcement from, a, um, shall we say, a compliant um, uh, conservative media. And so I think that what we're seeing is a shift away from that old standard of he said, she said, um, because that you know, that's enshrined in journalism education. But if you look at it historically, where that came from is from the wire services that had to sell a commodity news to uh, Republican and Democratic left wing, right wing publications. And so the he said, she said was the safe way of selling a commodity. Um, but that's the easy way out, the hard way. I am for so journalists. glad you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm so glad I just learned. What I love about doing these interviews is how much I learn, right? I didn't realize that, that that's a good reason for having the he said, she said, right? Because again, you're selling a product that had to go to everybody and you couldn't, it's, it, it's not even that it's not an opinion. It's just that if you happen to tell the truth as it is, they may not particularly want those particular stories. Exactly. And um, I think the, the challenge in, in our society, uh, and it all goes back to the internet and social media, uh, we've always had issues of people living uh, in information bubbles where they believed things that the vast majority of other Americans didn't believe. And so that's nothing unique. But what social media allows is for this to be accelerated and for this to be automated and for this to be uh, uh, sent at the speed of light all around the country uh, where everybody's got a platform. Everybody can be a publisher, but there's not much accountability for it. And so what I think the solution to all of this is, is a thing that some of my colleagues here at San Diego State and other universities around the country are calling digital and social media literacy. Our, um, our population in the United States today is simply illiterate um, as regards information that they get off of the internet and especially social media. And there's a skill set, uh, toolbox that uh, we can impart starting in uh, kindergarten uh, all the way through high school and certainly a general ed course at the uh, college or university level that would provide people with the tools that they need to be able to look at information that they receive and start asking questions about it. Isn't it true that in this country and likely everywhere else, there is a certain amount of desired willful ignorance by parties to justify their own sometimes prejudices, sometimes ideologies. And what, they, what, what this allows them to do is hide behind the misinformation that the social media allows them? I think uh, every human being has a tendency towards what's called confirmation bias. Um, right. We all like to feel that we've got it right. And when somebody disagrees with us, they've got it wrong. And so uh, the most insidious misinformation is the misinformation that kind of fits our worldview. And so that's where we've got to be especially careful are these taken for granted 
facts, if you will, uh, that may in fact uh, may in fact not be true. And so that's where we've got to another aspect of uh, uh, digital and social media literacy is looking at different points of view. Now, uh, given my uh, background, uh, I, I, I attended the University of California at Berkeley in the late 60s. I know, uh, so, I know your style. <laughs> so so I, I have a point of view that's uh, in a streets of Berkeley sort of point of view. Um, but I understand that a lot of people that I grew up with in a very rural part of California would disagree with me. So um, I have to expose myself to points of view that I'm not necessarily in agreement with. So I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I read the columns um, as far down into the column as I can get before I go, nah. <laughs> can't read anymore, but, but I, I expose myself to points of view uh, that I disagree with, and and uh, I think that's an obligation for all of us. I'm, I'm a very progressive, but I try to entertain all sides. In fact, uh, this program you'll find have a whole lot of conservatives, liberals, everything in between that uh, listens to this program, watches this program. But I, I want to go back to the same subject again, because I think it's a bit uh, deeper in that everything that you said, I agree with. We have to teach uh, digital literacy from kindergarten up so people can understand that everything that they click on isn't true. I agree with that. Um, but I think when we talk about, when we talk about confirmation bias uh, with people trying to find information that match, matches their ideology, uh, there's, I think there's yet another level and that is people find digital data to match their ideology uh, when they are sure that when they're disproved uh, they still maintain the same uh, you know and, and still continue to use that digital data as their their backups in as much as they may be proven false there is another tier I think that and I don't know how we handle that I don't know how we handle that that uh, when and that's where I talk about willful ignorance Right. From confirmation I, bias to willful ignorance. How I do we handle that, that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that we're going to, you know, make everybody, um, uh, shall we say, uh, sophisticated, literate folks on the Internet. And um, there will always be folks that have a strongly held point of view and uh, don't um, don't want to change. Uh, my 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 brother-in-law used to live uh, here in California, moved to South Carolina because he just couldn't stand living in a blue state anymore. Uh, though South Carolina is going uh, going purple anyway. It's going so. blue too, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that that my brother-in-law would be an example of somebody that had a strong point of view that just wasn't willing to. Um, uh, listen to other points of view, but I, I found him useful to talk to because um, during the Trump years, uh, he was very much a pro-Trump person. And so I'd start the conversation with, well, why do you think that's true? And you try to find, um, you try to find areas where you agree. Uh, one of my students um, uh, was an officer, uh, may still be uh, in the Marine Corps, and he uh, uh, was in my office uh, talking about, uh, this is back in 2016, it was talking about uh, voting for President Trump. And, uh, but he was from a rural part of Georgia, I believe, and I grew up in a rural area. And so we started talking about rural poverty and how rural poverty is different than urban poverty and how solutions to those problems have to take in 
to consideration those very special uh, characteristics. Sure. Well, sure. We, we, we strongly disagreed on who ought to be the next president of the United States, um, but we could find areas where we agreed and I think that a lot of times when you're dealing with, if you will, uh, willful ignorance, you try to find an area where you have some common ground and you try to expand, uh, expand from there. And I think the key thing isn't so much that you're necessarily going to uh, convert somebody to um, a, uh, a more right. enlightened point of view, uh, but you're going to have a dialogue. And when they start thinking about those people, they'll go, well, but, but, but there's this guy I was talking to and he's a liberal, but you know, he was one of my teachers and yada, yada. And that's, that's my stance. You know, I was talking to this guy, he voted for, for uh, Donald Trump, um, uh, career, career military guy, but we have things that we agree on. And uh, one of the things that uh, he pointed out, he says, a lot of people say that I'm a, because I voted for Trump, I'm a racist. Well, his wife is from the Philippines, his children are biracial. And he says, I take exception to that um, because uh, my family is biracial. And so um, I'm not a racist. My reason for voting for Trump had nothing to do with his uh, um, overt racism, if you will, uh, it was because of other things. And so when people would say, well, if you voted for Trump, you're a racist. I always remember um, my Marine Corps student who basically uh, got me out of my comfort zone, uh, got me out of an area where I was very comfortable with saying, oh, well, if you voted for Donald, you must be a racist. Well, indeed, many people had voted for Donald Trump uh, are and were racist. Um, but not everybody. And I think having those exceptions um, allows all of us to realize that as Americans, while we have these deep, deep differences, um, we also have a lot of things in common. That is so true. And I, I you know, having, having a relatives of mine, both black and white that have voted for uh, Donald Trump, uh, I, I've, I've learned that lesson, of course, because neither of them have or 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 racist per se neither the black one or the white ones racist so i mean um that that i think that is that's an important thing and it's it's hard in the in this during the steam to really get that out but anyhow um before we go here you you know what got this journalist this professor into writing a book called the california killing field well, that's, um, I'll try to make it a very short story. When I was 15 years old, I was next door neighbor and friends with a kid that got on the school bus with me. And because it was up in the mountains and it was cold in the winter, his grandfather would come and join us at the bus stop. And I'd sit in the cab uh, with this uh, student, same age as me, and his grandfather the granddad really well. Uh, well, the summer between our freshman and sophomore year, uh, uh, this individual, this uh, friend of mine, murdered his grandmother and his grandfather. Years later, when he was let out of prison, he went on to kill eight other people. His name is Ed Kemper, uh, and kind of a famous serial killer out here in California, now uh, serving time, uh, you know, multiple life sentences. Uh, and it got me at a very early age thinking about the death penalty. So to answer your question, I've always been interested in the death penalty. I happen to be an abolitionist. I don't think the death penalty is morally uh, uh, um, correct. And um, I also, through my own research, know 
it's a very racist institution. About 13% of Americans are, are African-American or black. 34% uh, of the people executed are black. So it's uh, probably one of the most racist institutions in our society. And um, so I decided to write a novel because these are things that you know people don't really care a lot about. And so I tried to write a novel um, that involved an investigative journalist doing some digging around and trying to introduce those issues in the context of uh, storytelling. So anyhow, that's, um, that's the, the backstory on the California killing field. Well, available on Amazon. Yeah, I, I saw it. I, I saw the book, you know, as I was going through your stuff here, I said, oh, let me bring up this stuff because that book's look at, book looks like it's going to be an interesting read. But anyhow, um, the question that I ask every single person that I interview, and that is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Oh, you did an excellent job of asking all of the right questions. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your program and, and answer those questions. Well, look, uh, Dr. Dozier, I really appreciate your, uh, you having been here on Politics Done Right. Uh, thank you so kindly, and you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too, sir. We have a very special guest. You know, we are partial to people that are out there doing real activism, people on the ground, people that are fighting for your well-being, people that are fighting for Medicare for All, people that are fighting for your free speech. Well, have we got somebody for you? We've got somebody that is considered one of the 25 most influential women in San Antonio. We've got one woman that's considered San Antonio's progressive wonder woman. With us today, we have no other than Sofia Sepulveda. Sofia Sepulveda is from San Antonio. She is a Mexican-American trans-Latina healthcare organizer for Texas Organizing Project. And you know what else makes her great? Back in the early days, she was one of Bernie Sanders supporters, which we know what all that means. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Sofia. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thank you for having me. How are you, Egberto? I am doing great. You know, um, I went, you know, after uh, doing some research on you and finding out about you, I found that, my God, you work your butt off in, 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 in the activism field. And we need a lot of people like you out there. Um, uh, listen, not Texas. America needs people like you. Tell me a little bit about yourself and then we'll move on from there. Definitely. I, I was born here in Laredo, Texas, but I grew up in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico with Mexican parents. I came back to San Antonio for college and um, I've been very involved in politics. My dad was very political when uh, back in Mexico. I, um, there was a candidate called Luis Donaldo Colosio back in 1996, I believe. Yes. And I was, he was like the Bernie of Mexico at the time. So I was very gung-ho on helping him out. And that was around the time where I turned 18 and I was excited to vote for Luis Donaldo Colosio. Unfortunately, he got killed, right? But my dad uh, brought me back to reality, said, um, you are a U.S. citizen. You cannot vote in Mexico. We didn't give you um, <laughs> dual citizenship, so good luck with that. And um, well, again, the story, he passed, um, he got killed during a campaign uh, trail uh, with another Colosio and 
that was the end. We got um, Carlos Enrique de Cortari, which was a very bad president. And I ended up moving here for college. I, uh, my first vote was, uh, I remember my aunt kept on telling me that I should vote for Gore because he was in the military, but I, stubborn little me, I voted for the Democrat, right? So, uh, and I've been uh, working on politics, politics ever since I was, uh, campaigning for Al Gore when I, uh, when I was very young because he was the only president at the time who was very supportive for gay rights, right? And environmental justice. So I was pretty involved with that. And I was mostly involved in political campaigns. So came Bernie in 2016, he said political campaigns is not where we're going to get, right? It's not, it's not gonna take us to the finish line. We need to be active in community and talk about issues, uh, uh, especially issues that affected, uh, that affect you. And 2014, 2015, I got really sick. I didn't have insurance. Uh, turned out it was a staph infection, right? It's multi-drug resistant. But my doctor at the time, I was going to a low-income clinic because I didn't have insurance. And he said that it, he thought it was lymphoma and I was really scared. I tried to get insurance. It was the middle of the year. And the only thing that you could get was quite catastrophic insurance. And I, because my doctor had already seen me, I wasn't qualified. So I had to go to our public health, which is the indigent health system that a lot of people do not know we have in every county. And I was able to get help. And unfortunately, I came out with around $15,000 debt. And that started prompting me to start asking questions, not just about with my family members, but workers about how, what are you doing when it comes to a medical emergency? And they would tell me, well, the reason that I'm working 50, 60 hours, right? Is because my daughter has asthma and I need to take her to the doctor and my deductibles in this insurance is pretty high. So I have to pay most of the costs out of pocket. And that's when I became an organizing in 2014, yes. Well, you know, and that is what's so important. You saw a problem. It not only affected you, but the empathy that you have from within, you saw it in others as well. You started asking questions and then you didn't say things can't change. You said, I am going to make sure things change. And you jumped on the band, the Bernie Sanders bandwagon. And you know, a lot of people would look at those of us who supported Bernie Sanders as a delegate in Philadelphia. But most of us who uh, support B Bernie Sanders, a lot of people would have said, why are you supporting that old man? Or why are you supporting that guy? What they don't understand is that the support really isn't for the guy. The support is for the movement. And not only was the support for the movement, but it turns out that all the Democrats and some Republicans now are singing the same songs out of Bernie Sanders' book. Isn't that right? Exactly. I, I, I keep on, my boyfriend actually kept on asking me, because um, I used to watch Bernie Sanders before he announced he was running, right? And I'd be like, if he runs, I will drop everything. I will help him. And he would tell me who is going to vote for an old, angry Jewish guy, right? Who's always screaming at like me, I will vote for this guy. And again, like you said, it was not a cult of personality. It's the anger and, 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 and yes, like, because we are constantly facing injustices, not only on our healthcare, right? But in housing and jobs. So I understood where he came from. It was not like, oh, Bernie is adorable and I want to follow him. No, it was the, uh, the thing that he was talking about. I kept on telling people, if tomorrow Bernie was to drop Medicare for all, 
I will stop supporting Bernie Sanders, right? And I will look for another champion who is a progressive champion. So we need to understand that we are not the Trumpers. We are not the QAnons. We want the policies. It's not about the money, it's about the policies. And I feel like um, I was listening to one of your po podcasts when you were talking about Beto O'Rourke getting very close, right? Mm -hmm. Because he was very strong on progressive policies. And people didn't want Beto because he was six foot five. They wanted him because of his policies. And yes, he got very close to getting um, uh, of getting rid of that cruise, right? And that's what we want. That's, uh, we realize going in community that people are angry. People are, uh, they don't have the hope anymore. They keep on telling me, why should I vote for this Democrat when I've been voting for them for 40 years and my life has not improved? And that is a very hard pill to swallow, especially when you're trying to get them engaged in the political discourse. That is why you're important, because you realize the essence of the voter. The essence of the voter is, I will vote when I really see something there to offer. Otherwise, why take the time off to go to vote? Why stand in the line? Why do that? We finally have to have something to offer. And you are the conduit between that voter and the appropriate and the appropriate elected official or the official to be elected. And that's why we should never waver when it comes to particular uh, people uh, for particular policies. If you take a look at Biden, a lot of people think, well, Bernie wavered on Biden and, 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 and all of that. And what you're seeing in Biden right now, it may be cosmetic. We don't know yet. It's our job to make sure it's not cosmetic. But, but, Look at, look at how he started with the environment. Look at how he started with healthcare. Look how he started with, with, with things that no one would think. Look at the size of the, 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 the um, COVID relief package. Even after a 600 billion package in December, he still comes back and he says, no, 1.9 trillion. So let's see. But so far, so good. Your thoughts? At the end of the day, right? Like, we need to be pushing Biden to be more progressive. He, we cannot sit back and think that he's gonna solve every problem. And, and yes, I, I totally agree. I, I was very surprised when the moment that he started signing this executive orders, reversing every horrible policy that Trump uh, created with the stroke of a pen, right? Like separating families at the border, denying healthcare to trans communities. Um, Pushing denying trans the ability to serve. And denying tra trans the ability to, so to serve on the military, right? So he was able to, to revert a lot of that. He is talking about creating a more comprehensive path to immigration, which honestly, those these immigrants have already been here for years. We don't need eight years of waiting. We need relief right now, right? But it, it is important to, to tell our folks and to tell those woke folks during the Trump administration that there is no time to go back to sleep. Right now, there's not the time to go back to mimosas and brunch. Right now is the time to start pushing, right? We were resisting for four years. I'm tired of resisting. Right now, we need to start pushing. And we need to start pushing for better. I really believe that Biden will be listening and hearing the uh, the pleas of uh, or the plights of our people, right? As long as we are consistent and we, uh, we continue pushing him to 
to create a better America for all of us, not just white folks. You know, I, that's that's an important statement. And I want to I want to add something to what you said, because I think it's important, given our audience. You just said a lot of these people here, the immigrants have been here for a long time already. They've been they've done their part. They've been working. And many times a lot of the so-called Nate, uh, the, the so-called Americans, the ones that think they have more right to be here than anybody else, in as much as the natives that are in Mexico, the natives that are in Canada, the natives that are all over the place that were here thousands of years before, mm-hmm. have more right, and their their DNA is in all you know all, all over the Americas. But many of them would uh, have a tendency to say, "Well, you know, uh, who who do you think you are for coming here as an immigrant and thinking you deserve rights?" I want to qualify certain things that you haven't said yet. I'm from Central America. I am from Panama. I have been a net positive to the America. To, to America, you were born here, but your parents are from Mexico. You were uh, the, the, what you brought to America was a net positive. What many forget is what America has done by going to Mexico, Panama, Jamaica, Cuba, and all these other places and extracted from them. So therefore, that extraction deserves that others that are there, many who have been maligned down there, come right back here to where the results of the extractions were. So as far as thinking, you owe anything to God. Oh, thank you so kindly, America, for accepting this indigent. That's not the case. No. Never, I tell immigrants all of the times, never feel like you are a lesser of a person in this country than somebody who has the false belief that they have more rights to be here than you do. And the reason I wanted to say that, um, uh, Sophia, is because when you said, well, we immigrants have been here all along, it still gives them that door to say, well, be thankful. No, we are a part of society and we are the ones that make this society as well. Continue, my friend. I'm sorry. No, no, that that, that's a great segue because I think that uh, also a lot of people who feel entitled to be here, right? They, they, they have the erroneous idea that immigrant families do not contribute to our economy, when in fact, they keep on uh, uh, paying taxes and they have no- um, They don't solution. get it back. They don't get it back at, at the end of the year. They continue paying on Medicaid. In fact, the immigrant community is the one who pays the highest number of money to the Medicaid program, but has no access to Medicaid, right? All of the access to Medicaid are by U.S. citizens, which uh, uh, immigrants pretty much self-fund. So it is very important that when we talk about Medicare for all, we always continue mentioning immigrant families because it's the only bill in Congress who will protect and ensure health care to immigrant families, right? I mean... I want to expand on that one, one quick bit before, before um, Sophia, because it's very important. Let's be clear here. The survival of Social Security, the survival of Medicare this far has been dependent on a group of people that invest into those funds and never take money out of those funds, meaning they don't, they pay Social Security, they can't take it out. They pay Medicaid, they can't, or rather they paid, they pay what's called a Medicare insurance tax and they can't take it out. So please, the problem in America is too many don't understand that immigrants are not only exploited by, by capitalists, 
but they're also exploited by the government. Yes, and yes. That, the, that in many a time, welfare received by Americans, meaning citizens, you and I are citizens, so we count as well, that, that what, what we get back at the end of our lifetime comes from a whole lot of immigrants that were picking fruits, that were building things that will never be able to take advantage of that. So it's a two-way street, my brothers and my sisters. It's a two-way street, and we need to understand that. Thank you, Sophia. No, and, and, and it's very true. And they're not only picking our fruits and giving us food, right? Like they're taking care of our children. They're taking care of our elderly. And also, they don't see the fruit of, of their labor, right? Because they continue struggling with healthcare. In, in San Antonio, right, we have, um, I, I talk about the indigent healthcare program. That is a program that is in every county. And it's supposed to be uh, providing healthcare to folks who are unfortunate, who are like low-income folks, immigrant folks who don't have access to, to, to healthcare. Well, if an immigrant a person gets diabetes and is dialysis, they get lost in the system and more likely die because they cannot apply for Medicaid because they um, they don't have access to Medicaid. They cannot apply for Affordable Care Act because they don't have access to, to the subsidies. So they are left behind. The, the county sends folks to either apply for Medicaid if you are a US citizen. And so you can get your dialysis services, you can get your cancer treatment, but if you're an immigrant, where do you go? Right. So it is very important, like you said, mentioning they're not only providing us food, they're not only contribute contributing to the economy without anything in return. They also have no access to food. They don't have access to health care. And they're the ones who are left off, right? And left behind, especially during a pandemic. If we're not taking care of these people, we're not taking care of each other because they're, again, they're the ones who are making your food in that restaurant that you like to eat your tacos. If they get COVID and they are forced to go back to work, you will get COVID. So we need to ensure that we're taking care of our immigrant population if we want to get better. And this is not charity, folks. It is not charity. Again, these people, and you know, what happened is for political reasons, we know a whole lot of uh, folks generally on the right use uh, immigrants as whipping persons, but not understanding that their well-being depends on the well-being of immigrants in general. And there are a lot of people who realize that the capitalists understand that as well. That's why they play both sides of the game. They don't want uh, uh, all these these uh, these Mexicans and Latinos thrown over the border. They don't want that. They may give simulated that they want it, but then they tell their, their politicians, don't do it, don't do it. I mean, it's a game and the person that always pays are the people that least can afford. And it's not only the immigrants that pay, but it is the middle class and the poor. Exactly, I, I, I exactly, totally agree. You know, but anyhow, um, let's talk about uh, your fight for Medicare for All. Since we're on the medical um, type, the, the medical issue subject right now, tell me where do we go? How do we go from here? Because we only have about uh, six minutes or so. Where do we go uh, here? How do we now take a Biden who just wants to improve Obamacare and get what is the only option that makes financial sense for this country, which is Medicare for all. We need to continue organizing. We need to continue going on community and talking to community about the need of Medicare for all, but not just the need, right? But what benefits you're gonna rip off if we have Medicare for all. A lot of people think that it's like government giveaway and you're gonna end up poor. And at the end of the day, Medicare for all means you don't have to worry about monthly premiums. 
you don't have to worry about uh, deductibles. You don't have to worry about out-of-pocket expenses. You don't have to worry about um, doctor's visits, right? And you have choices. Right now, they keep on telling you, you, you have the choice, you have the choice. I want to know the person or the worker who made a choice to get the insurance at their place of work because we don't have a choice in between Aetna and Humana and uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. We take whatever our employer, give, uh, our employer gives us. We don't have a choice in choosing what hospital, what doctor we go to. We, we only choose the doctors that our insurance companies tell us we can choose. My boyfriend, again, he, he got a card in the mail saying, these are the hospitals you can see and these are the hospitals you cannot see. Six out of the seven hospitals in San Antonio, he cannot see. So where is the choice? When we talk about Medicare fraud, we talk about real freedom, freedom from employers taking advantage of us, freedom uh, from the labor movement. Then you have um, a better way to bargain for a better wages instead of taking care of what little healthcare you have, right? So we need to organize and we need to educate and inform our communities about why we need this. When it comes to the black community, Maternal mortality rates in Texas is num we're number six on maternal mortality mortality rates. We're number one on the most uninsured people in the whole entire country. So when we talk about Medicare for all, it's not about socialism. It's about taking care of each other, as we should be. We need to start getting rid of the idea of the rugged individualism and what I do is for me and for me alone. When at the end of the day, whatever actions you take are going to have effects on people that you might not know. That is wonderful and very perfectly put. I want to add one uh, caveat, not a caveat, one additional uh, phrase to that. And that is we should consider and everybody should consider private insurance antiseptic slavery because it's just a matter of which master you want to serve. Do you want to serve at that big house, that big house, or that one? Which master do you want? Which master whips you less? Which master gives you a bit more food? Which master tells you, however, what you must do and that you prefer? If Americans started to see that our healthcare system right now is nothing more than slavery, meaning all of you guys that are walking there that look at me and think, only think about me when you think slavery, you got to look in the mirror, whoever you are, because you are a slave to the current economic system. If you don't have the freedom, as was very aptly put by Sofia Sepulveda. Let me tell you, okay. Sofia. Go ahead. Really? Like when we talk about death panels right now, the only death panels that exist are insurance companies who have the right to deny you services, even if they don't know your... Um, medical background. That is so true. Now, uh, um, Sophia, I always ask this last question to my the people that, are, that I interview, and it goes as follows. And it's because I show my fallibility. And that is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? How do we organize it, right? And what do we do in order to get the community engaged? I think of many ways we've done um, we got Lloyd Doggett to support Medicare for All two years ago by bird dogging him. If you don't know what bird dogging is, go birddognation.org and they tell you what it is. It's pretty much going after them. The, going um, after them in real the time. Exactly. And disrupt 
always disrupt, right? And, and, and look at your representatives. Who is the one who is endorsing Medicare fraud and who is not? Sheila Jackson Lee and Harris supports Medicare fraud, but Lissy Fletcher and Sylvia Garcia do not. So we need to start focusing on those folks rather than focusing on people who already support our efforts, right? So that's the only thing that I will have to say. Muchísimas gracias. Dele un, una despedida a nuestra audiencia latina. Muchas gracias por estar aquí y espero que sigan con nosotros y, continu y continúen organizando en sus comunidades. Si quieren estar en en enganchados con nosotros, vayan a organizetexas.org. Es una uh, organización comunitaria que estamos pe peleando para mejor salud, inmigración y reforma polici uh, policial. Y ahora en inglés. Thank you very much for being here. And thank you so much, Alberto, for your invitation. If you want to keep on fighting for Medicare for All, if you want to fight for the rights of immigrants, get rid of the um, jail system, come visit us at www.organizedtexas.org. And if you cannot donate, come and get engaged. Sofia Sepulveda, first-generation Mexican-American activist and you're looking at a real activist folks thank you so kindly for having been on politics done right thank you Alberto, for having me i hope you enjoyed that folks please support kpft in the name of politics done right by hitting donate button at kpft.org follow me on twitter my twitter handle is egberto willies E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. You can listen to Politics Done Right every single day of the week at 3 p.m. Central on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Visit the website at politicsdoneright.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel to get notifications not only of the Politics Done Right program, but on other videos we produce daily. Just visit politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Again, thank you for being a part of the KPFT and Politics Done Right family. Have a wonderful rest of the day. I'm Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right, and you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. <laughs>